Good morning, Internet. We're doing the thing again, where we start with a different intro. because Welcome back. There's no consistency. Unless, what? Well, welcome back unless this is our first podcast. Welcome back. And welcome. Welcome back to maybe the first episode, maybe the 10th. It's Hey Retriever. With John Michael Ryan and, and Matt Richmond. Matt Richmond. That's Matt Richmond. Matt, turn your microphone down. God, down. Matt comes in hot every time. Okay, how about this? Is that better? No. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's all the way down. Maybe if you take your mouth off of the microphone. It's not supposed to be in your mouth. How's this? Yeah. We have uh, the joy of chatting today with Bobby Herrera, a friend of mine and a fellow filmmaker, St. Louisan currently, um, but by way of another world. And Matt, I, I obviously look at you and, and Bobby as kind of two uh, really narratively focused filmmakers in my group of fellow filmmaker friends uh, and creators. Um, and a lot of this conversation will be new to you, which is fun. You'll have unique perspectives. But Bobby, welcome. How are you, Bobby? Pretty good. This is I'm nailing it today. Um, yeah, you guys are pros, <laughs> right? Uh, clearly, this is like this is probably how it should run. You want to make sure you're fixing your mic on the intro. Uh, so, Bobby Herrera, documentary filmmaker, narrative filmmaker, creator of things. I've known you since 2012. That's it. Maybe a little bit longer. I think I ran into you when you were making Gray Seasons. Well, then that that was that was. And that was uh, earlier than 2012. Yeah, it must have been. Uh, yeah, Bobby, you're you're from Texas originally, right? Yes. Where from do you hail? I was born and raised in Corpus Christi, Texas, on the Gulf Coast, a little bit south of San Antonio, two hours north of Mexico, in the blistering heat and humidity. So you found. Another place just like that to live today. <laughs> no, Corpus is much better. There is wind there coming off of the Gulf Coast breeze. Here it gets humid and stale, and it's disgusting. In Corpus, you could like go fly a kite and enjoy. I mean, it's 110 degrees, but like you know, you can go fly a kite. I think that's a great position for a tourism campaign. All the places. I mean. The wind there brutalizes kites. Like my daughter likes to go to Corpus and, and fly a kite, and I'm just like, you gotta get a stronger kite than this thing, girl, because like this thing is gonna die in this wind, and they always do, or they get lost. You know, that's it. I've only seen kites in St. Louis um, on Art Hill, and only on occasion. I feel like it's not very like it's not a big St. Louis thing to go fly kites, and I wish it was. Bobby, were you in Texas long enough to feel like a Texan? Like, do you do you have that in you? Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. Texans yeah. just think of themselves as Texans first, generally, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think of myself as Mexican-American first, then Texan. Those are pretty, they're pretty close. Uh, Texan is pretty, and it's weird because I'm not, I'm not like from rural Texas. Like, I don't go near horses. I wasn't raised on a ranch. I don't go near guns. I kind of grew up in like a little inner city black and brown community um, in the refinery district. But yeah, Texans, we love, we love being Texans. 
And it sounds like you're back there some? Back, oh, I'm in Texas a lot. I mean, several times a year. If not to see family or if not to work, just, you know, there's some reason or another to be there. And of course, I have tons of family and friends there. And of course, I try to take my daughter there as much as possible. So, so why St. Louis? How'd you end up in the Midwest? I ended up here because I, uh, first I went to Baylor University in Texas. I didn't like it. And so I transferred out of Baylor to Washington University here in St. Louis. Ah. And I attended the architecture school here at what, what we all call Wash U and um, finished school and really was too broke to go anywhere and uh, didn't really know where to go anyways. Um, all I knew is I wanted to make a film. So I kind of just stuck around here and um, figured out how to like make a documentary and spent kind of two or three years making my first documentary, which is a long story because it never got released. But I made it and it was cool and it was good. And it kind of set me up to stay here. And then I just decided to make another film. And I was like, well, I guess I'll stick around here and do that film. And then 20 years later, here we are. John, there's a theme building here on our roster that I wasn't aware of. So architecture was your field of study. It sounds like everybody on our roster has come from a completely different field, at least educationally, um, and just been drawn to filmmaking out of like just pure sort of passion or curiosity or whatever it is, but drawn from another world. Yeah. Um, for me, it was... I always wanted to make films ever since I was a small kid, but when it was time to like do the whole college thing, I'm a first generation college student, right? So it's like, uh, my dad's from Mexico, my mom from South Texas. It was like, they busted their ass. So, you know, we could go to college and it was like, I don't know. I just, if I was going to go to college, I didn't want to go to college to get a film degree. I was like, it sounds like a really huge waste of time. So, uh, I decided to go for other things. So I studied architecture. I studied philosophy and literature. Also, I just say architecture is shorthand, but I have a degree in, in, a, in a few things. And so I was just interested in studying other things. And architecture interested me, not to the extent that I thought I was going to be an architect. I really had no intention of being an architect. I just wanted to get a degree in something interesting so that by the time I could fight my way through college, I could get out and start making a film about something. So architecture was kind of just like, I had to study something. <laughs> I had the same experience, although it, yours at least was a sort of practical. I chose Russian. Never, I had never spoken Russian. Never, I didn't, I didn't even know a Russian person. You might as well uh, have gone to film school, man. Yeah, exactly. I didn't, I didn't finish that degree. <laughs> I think there's something to be said for the what you learn and gain from problem solving in different fields, whether you're studying biology or philosophy or architecture, and what that brings to the storytelling process, like the problem solving process. Because every story is an opportunity, every story is a set of problems that you kind of overcome as a creator. And the, the problems sometimes are minute and they're technical, and other times they're really big. They're like, how do you put all the blocks together? Um, I think that the architecture background is fascinating because Ultimately, you're a problem solver. Yeah, I mean, architecture is very much like filmmaking, at least in my 
mild experience with it. I mean, you you deal with. I mean, it's a perfect metaphor. I mean, you deal with a a design that is essentially your script, right? It just exists on paper. Something you can design something by yourself. You can follow the rules or not follow the rules, and then um, you know, hopefully, somebody pays you to do that design. But if not, you just did it on your own, and now you got to find you know twenty million dollars to make it, and then that involves. I don't know, anywhere between 100 to 500 people, right? <laughs> Down to the tiniest detail, you know? And, and, now, and now you're not a designer anymore. Now you're a general contractor, right? I mean, if you want to be, right? Unless you just want to be the designer and hand it off like, like a writer and hand it off, you know? It's, it's similar and there is problem solving and there's just, it, it helped me kind of like continue to evolve uh, process creatively, for all things. And I, I consider everything I do kind of just off um, out of the same pot, you know, whether it's writing or filmmaking or drawing or designing or whatever. Just to let you know, John, I, I did solve Russian too. Oh, so, good. As far as the problem solving goes, yeah. I'm just going to say that right now it doesn't look like you did on a global scale. Oh, no, no, I solved the language, oh, not, okay. not the country. Not the Russian complex. All right. That was second semester. Okay, let's see. That's a documentary we can start working on. Uh, you know, it's I, I run into a lot of kids who are in school and their their degrees are all over the place, but they like filmmaking. But they're like the the impulse is to say, "Well, I didn't go to film school," and I I try to be I, I try to be conscientious to the idea that that film schools have a place and kids go there and do good things. But I really do. I, I'm a big advocate and fan of um, the liberal education. You know, learning different things to, that you can then apply to the things that you do. What's unique about you, Bobby, I think, is that you aren't just an ideas person, though. You're not afraid to jump in, to film, to create. Um, talk to me about that first process, whether the first film or Grey Seasons or even to, you know, Palacios. Like, what's your method? Like, do you prefer to be hands on camera when you're creating fly on the wall? Do you like to step back more now? Or how has that evolved since the architecture school? I mean, it's changed greatly um, over two decades, right? So, I mean, at first I had, I had to film a lot on my own, right? So, I, so my first film was basically my film school, right? I mean, I had no idea how to operate a camera. But I mean, I have a visual background. I, you know, I know composition. I know design, and I can take great pictures, right? But now it's just now we got a moving camera, and I had to just kind of like figure that out. And luckily, on my first film, I didn't really do a ton of filming. I just did a, like a like a lot of handheld handy cam type stuff, and then I had a couple of other people film um, and like light interviews and stuff like that. And then where I really kind of like found my my place early on was in editing. I mean, I cut a feature film. All I had really cut up to that point was like two experimental docs that I had done in college and um, that were based in editing, you know, that like were really creatively edited. And editing was something that I just understood from the beginning. Like everything about making choices in that regard makes complete sense to me. So I kind of shot this wild-ass documentary uh, when I was like 22, 23 years old. And I had about 300 hours of footage, and I cut an 86-minute doc in like two months. 
And it was pretty good. I'm not going to get into the whole ins, ins and outs of it, but it was kind of editing and the post-production process and creating the music and the process for creating the music and kind of developing the storytelling. It had four narrative tracks going at the same time. It was a pretty complex edit. I had a 1930s George Wilhelm Pabst black and white film in there. I had a philosophy lecture. I had a handy cam journey of a, of a road trip and then um and then there was kind of an interview base like uh retelling of stories from from years ago and all these tracks kind of intertwined to make this pretty cogent 86 minute film or 82 minute film or whatever it ended up being i i also uh had the music made by uh colleague of mine, someone I went to college with, and he, he himself now is a, um, he's an extremely talented musician, but now he himself is a pretty acclaimed short animated film uh, director. And he and I are working on some stuff now, but I asked him back in the day when he was like, just kind of like a Austin musician and artist to start making music for this film. And we started recording the music before I edited it. So I've always had the music of every project, uh, feature project I've done. Um, in the edit. And uh, so I put that film together and ended up getting in the hands of a fancy film director who I'm not going to name. And I went to his house and we watched the film together. And it was a pretty amazing experience for being 24, 25 years old. And uh, he loved it. And we talked about what the possibilities were to do with it. And then I got back home and then legally the whole film fell apart and I could never release it. It's just a whole tragic story. Um, so then I moved on. Someone offered me a little bit of money to make a film about basketball. And that's kind of how I ended up making The Gray Seasons, um, a film that was originally supposed to be about men's basketball. And things shifted and changed a year into that. But that is a project that I essentially made with just one other person. It was four years of production. I shot probably 70% of that film myself. And that's really where I learned to shoot. And there's shooting sports is a good way to, to like learn quick. <laughs> you said something that I want to hit in on, which is the editing process. I think for any creator, especially for director, knowing how to cut your story is the biggest training tool because you deal with your own problems. And as a shooter, especially cutting your own footage, you start to discover the problems in your coverage, the problems or the gaps in your approach to things. Um, if you had to, if you had to tell someone one of your biggest lessons you learned in gray seasons as a shooter, as a creator, what's that, what's one of the key takeaways from that process? I mean, for me, it was just about flexibility, right? Like the be, being able to move quickly. You know, that's a very specific to that project type of thing. But to this day, I mean, no matter what I'm shooting, I want to move fast. I want things to be efficient. I want camera packages to be built in, in a way that we can adjust quickly. I try to have as many, when budgets allow, as many cameras on set as possible, even if they just sit there like I hate waiting to like take a camera off this rig and put it on another rig. And like, I'm just like, can we just have like a camera sitting on that rig for like half a day for when we need it so we can get that shot and then we can move on. You know, it's just, but the, I was also shooting standard def, which is a whole nother world, right? Like your flexibility shooting standard def back then with those cameras was amazing. 
and now everything, the sensors are all, we're all shooting fucking IMAX cameras now. And it's like, you can't do anything. There's no flexibility. There's no efficiency whatsoever. It's like I got this ginormous camera with this ginormous sensor and I can't have a zoom lens on it that zooms more than like, you know, 24 to 50 or some worthless fucking zoom. You know, it's just like, it's just it's such a different world now that I've just had to kind of at least adjust personally, like how I, I approach things and evolve over the course of cameras changing and production values changing and budgets changing. And now I don't make things by myself anymore. Well, I mean, I do sometimes, but you know, getting paid to make things at a higher level. Now there's like 10 people standing around and this is his job and this is his job. So it went from just like a guy who just makes stuff by himself in a bubble. And I evolved into a guy who kind of makes stuff with other people and they're all a pain in my ass. I feel like one of the ch- challenges on that is you, as you start to do a couple things, you'll have somebody come along who wants to pay you to make something. And, and the thing that I hear is they'll say, yeah, I want it to look like that. Or I'd like, I'd like something like that. Or they'll reference something. And the, and the word that is that is always kind of a hang up for me because the problem with a lot of the things that I think we all make on our own is that we have all this plasticity and the ability to respond and, 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 and do things. Um, as we want to, and then the second you compile that into a ten-hour day, and on a predictable schedule, you do you lose some of that freedom, and you lose the ability to to just bounce. Like we, you know, back in the XL2 is what I started on the old Canon DV tape, and um, you could just run and gun, and you could do that. And now to run and gun, it it takes so many extra pieces to make a camera do the thing, unless you really step up to a more expensive platform. But the problem as you do that is there's more expensive problems. And so it's, it's a weird dynamic as a commercial filmmaker, as a commercial maker, director versus a documentary creator, director, filmmaker, you know, the methods are so different. And the industry has created this, this huge array of cameras that very quickly can overwhelm the intention of the creator because there's so many things you're doing. And pretty soon you have a car-sized you know, set of boxes just to keep your camera moving. And it's a challenge. I think it's it's an easy pitfall uh, for creators. Matt, you were going to say something. Oh, you kind of touched on it. I, but maybe, Bobby, you could talk a little bit about the difference between how you approach a commercial job versus a job that's your own. Or, you know, how do you, how do you kind of attack the same problems differently? Or do you? Commercials are fun. So when there's a and when getting paid to do something is fun, getting to pay to do something as like ridiculous as like film things is is fun. So um, no, I mean I, I would say there's a different kind of mental approach to when I'm trying to satisfy my taste versus satisfy the goal of a client or some other project. I'm pretty like off the rails when I'm like doing my own stuff. And then uh, when I'm doing a client or commercial video or piece for whether there's a ton of us on set or just a few of us, it's kind of like a puzzle to try and piece all that together. What a client wants, arguing for what you think is more interesting or more provocative or more compelling or and trying to get that done with this camera instead of the more ideal camera or with this DP instead of, you know, it's just, it's just kind of all these pieces coming together and it's, it's a do the best with what you got in any scenario. And in some scenarios you got a ton. 
right? Like you got a, a lot, and um, but it's still a work with what you got. You know, I mean, I mean, still, and there's parameters with everything, right? And I think the the most restraining parameter we tend to have in a, in a commercial aspect is, is just time, right? Everybody wants everything done fast. Everybody wants this shot done, shoot in a day or shot in two days, or they don't let us prep or prepare, you know, it's just, and so I always kind of find myself just like figuring out, figuring it out as, as we go, because a lot of budgets don't really allow for a ton of prep or at least that's my that's my experience i'm right. being i'm getting i'm getting some opportunities now where like you know there's more pre-production or there's more but when you say off the rails when it's your piece um what's an example that like are you talking about um just not worrying about the bottom line in the same way or or letting a letting a project take a year if it needs it or it, how, how are things off the rails yeah i mean definitely Time, like I always want more time. When um, it comes to the methods for how I want to shoot something, you know, they're not methods I would bring to a to a client unless they really, really trusted me. You know, whether it's how I want to shoot an interview, whether it's how I want to interview, whether it's how I want to shoot just a creative single camera piece, whether it's how I want uh, a scene between two actors to play out, and how I want that shot music, you know, the, the way I, I sit on things for a long time and just like mull them over for a while, the way I make decisions. I mean, I'm a, like, I, I, there's two parts of me of how I make things. I can just like sit and wait on things for a long time until it kind of like comes to me. And I could also make decisions like no other, like and live with it, you know, and not like cry about it two months later. So when I'm, making things, there's not a huge rhyme or reason to anybody else other than me and other than those that have kind of liked to work with me for a long time, for instance. You feel freer to follow a whim or take a chance or to fail on something and, and come back and Yeah. And and I'm more than more than happy to fail. Also that's that's another thing. Um, because you're not you don't really have that freedom commercially right you don't want to fail a client um you don't want to spend half a day doing something and be like well that didn't work yeah sorry we spent twenty thousand dollars on that i always call that failing within reason you have to like you, you know you want to stretch on these jobs and and i you know pet work is a nightmare sometimes because you're trying to do things that are almost guaranteed to fail in some capacity but there's like a boundary it's like bumper bowling with a kid or with an adult uh where you know, at least the ball is going to get to the pins, and that's a hard thing. Yeah, the happy accident method, right? Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really hard to just like fall on your face, fail. Like, if you don't shoot something, you're going to fail. Yeah. Um, but if you're shooting something and and it's not working, you're still shooting something, and there's still value, hopefully, in what you're pulling off accidentally. So I want to pivot for a second, um, and and this is where I want to bring up something that both I think Matt and Bobby, uh, both of you as as creators of things, but also as fathers, do a really good job. Um, I think being fathers, and for me, having come into my family uh, later in life, you know, with my stepkids, my kids, um, 
when I look at how other men and how other people who work in this industry spend time with their kids and raise their kids and interact with their kids, I'm impressed by both of you. And Bobby, uh, how old is Lapita now? Uh, she'll be seven. She's seven. In a couple weeks. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like I've had a really fun time getting to actually observe and kind of watch you guys' travels and, and, and as she grows up, um, this life that you have created. Uh, what are some of your reflections on just uh, what it is to be, to be a dad, but also to be a dad who jets out and creates things or goes away and writes and comes back? And, and what is that relationship like with your kid and how does that inspire you and how do you inspire her? Um, you know, I really never saw myself being married and having kids like most of us, like super cool creatives, you know, in our twenties, like, I'm just going to be a obscure, weird, alcoholic, depressed artist in a cabin somewhere and die alone. The dream. Someone will find all my journals. The dream. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and then you kind of like, and then, um, you know, so I end up getting married, and the concept of having a kid appealed to me. And people really don't like that. I people like really are turned off with this idea that like I would view my child as like a project. But it's like, but I mean, that's how I viewed it. I was like, all right, let's just do one. Let's just have a control, have one kid, and let's just like go off the rails with it, so to speak, right? Like a, like a film or like anything else. And so me and my wife decided we would have one. And I prayed to God that it would be a girl. I wanted a girl so bad that um, I was certain it wouldn't be a girl just because. But luckily, we had a girl. And um, me and my wife got a pretty like 50-50, you know, with you know, it, it ebbs and flows. But we got a pretty 50-50 on, on our, you know, taking care of her, responsibility of her. My wife is a career woman, so she's incredibly busy. She's in the medical field, so she's incredibly busy. And, I mean, for us, the, the key was having one kid. I think things would be very different for, for us if we had two or, or three. Um, but the one just allowed for us to just, like, bring her along for the ride, right? That's kind of like That's kind of like her thing. She's just along for the ride. She gets to travel with me a ton. She gets to just kind of do what we do. She watches what we watch. She's just very embedded in mine and my wife's like day to day. So she's very conscious of what we do, how we do things, the way we live our lives. Like I, I didn't change really anything huge about me and my life. I mean, I still curse as much as I do. I still watch the same stuff I watch. I still, you know, I still ride my motorcycle. You know, which a lot of people are like, oh, how do you have a ride a motorcycle after you have a kid? You know, it's just, and so it's been fun. And like, I don't know, I don't have a lot of experience with other kids, but my kid ended up being pretty fucking cool. So um, she's kind of like down for whatever, man. She's just, she really fits in really well with the way we live our life. And because of that, she enjoys, you know, she has fun. And I don't, I don't know, I don't know if like a different personality would have been, you know, I don't know if like we molded her personality or how much of it was just already there. I get the sense that a lot of it was just already there. Like for, my daughter watches like, 
she's seen Predator with me like a handful of times. We skip over all like the dirty sex jokes at the beginning when they're in the helicopter. But other, after that, she's like down to watch like Predator kill people. And she watches pretty violent, like crazy stuff. But I teach her to watch things. Like she knows what's, what stuff is fake. She understands filmmaking. She asks a lot of questions. But ultimately, she's not like scared of like gory stuff. My wife loves gory horror movies too, right? And so, but I've met kids or I've talked to parents whose kids, like they can't even like read a comic book with like a monster in it or they'll have nightmares for like, and like, so I can't imagine what I would have done if that was my daughter, right? I think it was just like inner personality to just be like, she's down for watching like Wolverine, Logan cut people's heads off. Like she thinks it's cool. So, uh, you know, it's just, a figure it out as we go kind of thing. It's fun because she flies with me and travels with me. And she has just me and her have just traveled together since I think the first time I traveled with her by myself, she was three. Like we, and um, since then she's a little airport pro. She knows the hotel life. She knows the car rental life. She knows, you know, TSA security. They're going to ask her her full name. She's going to say her age. She's got all her shit on her backpack. And I go get a coffee and she gets a cake pop. You know, like she's just like melded into our lives like perfectly. So that's kind of like how it's been. Exposure's huge. You know, when you, when you expose a kid to the world and, and they get to see things, either ideas or places or people, and they do things that are unfamiliar, I think that, that that's something that is missing in a lot of people's lives. Uh, because when you experience new things, especially as a developing mind, you have to problem solve in a different way. And then when you have somebody there to mentor and teach alongside that experience, like you create really good little humans who are capable of thinking and doing things on their own, which I think is huge. Um, Matt, you also, you, you and your family are very similar in terms of the boys and how you... Having one is key, though. That, that, was, that was a good move, Bobby. <laughs> Two, you're muddying up the experiment. You know, they're, they're, they're interacting with each other too much to really see what's happening, you know? It's, uh, I don't know what my influence is. I just try to keep them fed and, uh, you know, behaved. They're like guinea pigs. Right, right. Um, I do enjoy coming home at the end of a work day and they have my pipe and my scotch ready and my (laughs) newspaper. Uh, And I like to sit in my my chair, you know, dad's chair. Uh, And then they call me sir and they go to bed. I mean, it was funny, Bobby. We had had Matt's oldest, Francis, out this week on Monday and Tuesday on set for the first time. And uh, he kicked ass. I mean, like, the kid's a hard worker. And... It's one of those things where, for those of you listening who are unfamiliar with St. Louis, you know we're a small market, and so finding people who are passionate and focused and drive, you know, they they stay, they go, they move, right? They 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 go where the work is because the work isn't um, always here. But for Francis, as a, as a as a young first time on set art PA working his way around, like to see that excitement and enthusiasm, and and to think Matt that you cooked that. Um, Maybe intentionally, maybe not. Was was pretty impressive, and I and I see that too, Bobby. With 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 you and and your daughter, you know, the even from the little social paradigm of our Instagrams and stuff, you know, like her experiences and the way she's seeing the world. God, it it, it feels like um like a Malik film. You know, it's like it's like how I imagine this this 
the eyes of a child just seeing these experiences because I, what else is there? You know, and, and, and I, I feel for the fact that I think a lot of, a lot of uh, people's inability to communicate with other people stems from their lack of exposure to other people. And what better a way than to put, you know, to walk through an airport as a kid? Think about how many people just have never walked through an airport or they get kid gloved. It's almost like a, learning a language. You know, if you start learning a language really early in the home, um, you have a facility that you can't replicate if you start later, right? And, and she's going to have that facility with new people and with the sort of travel bureaucracy and all the, all the little steps to getting to a new place and meeting new people. It's all just innate uh, when you start that young, I think. Yeah, it's funny, to, especially at the airport when she's with me. I tend to just like leave her behind because she walks really slow because she's got low legs. And um, sometimes she dresses, sometimes I make her dress like all black. I tend to just like wear a lot of black and travel and I'm wearing black and a black hoodie. Sometimes I make her wear all black so at least like people can like visually connect us. But sometimes she just throws on her own like wild little thing. And I'm like 20 feet in front of her, like walking to our gate. And she just, and I see people spot her and like, what is this like five-year-old child <laughs> dragging a bag by themselves through the airport? Where is this kid going? And I see people see her because you know, I'm ahead of them and, I, and I'm looking to the left. But she's good, man. She's just like, she's, yeah, she's cool. I mean, everything, it's weird that it seems like everything I do revolves around her. At least from, even from a creative standpoint, everything I write now and everything like I think of, I kind of approach from this idea of, of being a father. But I don't know. I don't, I don't really, I don't know if that's like my evolution or if that's just the evolution of her entering my, sp- you know, like I don't know if everything revolves around her because we made a conscious choice to have our world revolve around her or if she just entered the center of our world that was revolving already. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't know what got injected into what it's, it's hard to tell at this point. I mean, that's also like, that's like not to connect it to you, but that's like the nature of documentary, right? Like you, the story happens and you just kind of find your way into it and you go with it in a lot of ways. It's like life imitating art. Um, art imitates life. It's pretty fascinating. So that's our our little subheader on fatherhood with Bobby Herrera. Uh, and Bobby, Robert, when did you choose to go by Bobby and not Robert? I didn't. I didn't. It was given. I, was, I, don't, I was born. My cake, when I came home from the hospital, said, welcome home, Bobby. And to this day, I ask my, my parents, who are Mexican, and I grew up in a primarily Mexican and, and black neighborhood, and we're a very Latino, Tex-Mex family. And uh, there are no other Bobbies in the neighborhood where I grew up. So I always asked my mom, like, why did y'all call me Bobby? Because my brother, my father is Ruben, my brother is Ruben. You know, I was Robert. And my grandmother, and various people would call me Roberto, but my parents always just called me Bobby. Everyone calls me Bobby. And I, mom was just like, I don't know, I just want to call you Bobby. I was like, okay, well, the only Bobbies I knew growing up were Bobby Brady. And then um, and then luckily there was La Bamba and there was Bob. 
from La Bamba, played by Isai Morales. And that always made me feel a little better about being called Bobby and Bob because it's my brother, my parent, my family calls me Bob. My brother calls me Bob. My wife calls me Bob. My, my niece uh, calls me Uncle Bob. Um, I always used to say when, when before now, when people would ask me like in my 20s, call me Bob or like, do you go, is it Bob? Do you go by Bob? I always used to say, no, I'm not a 70 year old white guy yet. <laughs> but uh, no, it's just always been Bobby. Um, I had no choice in the matter. I asked my mom, uh, I asked my mom one time if they had, had a name picked out for me if I was a girl. And she said, Tammy. <laughs> I was like, what is wrong with y'all? You're the weirdest Mexicans I've ever met. Tammy? Like Tamara? She was like, no, I think we were just going to name you Tammy. Just Tammy. Tammy? Tammy Aretta? That makes no sense. So I so I, I don't know. I don't know what happened there. I just, they decided to call me Bobby. And uh, that's that's what it is. I love name stories because names are always shorthand or long and, and people have nicknames. I was born just John, just three letters John, like the simplest little, you know, Scandinavian version of my name. And I'm always, you know, people ask me like, why, why do you go by JMR? And my my answer is, I don't. People just call me that. I'm just John to myself. That's what works. Yeah, yeah. And then my my daughter, I mean, her first name is Evan, and then her middle name is Lupita, but I was always going to call her Pita. Like that was always like, and then I thought everyone else was going to call her Evan, but at a certain point, everyone just stuck to beat the, that's what they call her. And the kid stays in the picture. So uh, wrapping up, what are you doing now? What have you got coming up that you're stoked about? I know some things, but they're for you. Yeah. I don't know. I can't really talk about anything. That's sexy. Yeah, People are like, he can't talk about it. I can't and I don't want to. Um, I'm mostly just doing a lot of writing, so um, or trying to do a lot of writing. It's I find myself mostly trying to write versus writing. Um, that counts as writing. Can, <laughs> can you? Uh, what can you tell us about your experience at Sundance, though? Because that's that's public knowledge, right? Yeah, uh, Sundance. Uh, so I wrote a screenplay. I applied to the Sundance Lab. I won. I got to go. Um, it was cool. You know, I always feel weird talking about it. I'll talk about it a little bit, but I'll talk about how I don't want to talk about it. Um, they don't, people don't really talk about it. Like if you like try to do research on the labs, on the five day or on the two day intensive and stuff like people, they, it's a very cool community, um, umbrella to be under. Everyone takes it very seriously. There's not a lot of, uh, posturing with with the role or, or with winning you know it's just kind of like you kind of just go and experience and so i had the ex- the experience of doing the two-day intensive with at sundance institute in la with um nine other scripts um so this and, was a writing lab yeah uh, so this was for, just to break it down you were so you were there just to concentrate on that script with the expertise of sundance behind you as you worked is that right right and uh, yeah and so it was a it was a two-day intensive um and we worked with um pretty great people and then um i had two then you're assigned two uh what's the word um advisors one in the morning one in the afternoon and um 
both of my advisors were, were women and one, um, I didn't know her work very well, but I mean, she's pretty damn legit. And then the other, I know her work very, very well. And, um, it was a blast, man. And it's just kind of like, I, I don't come from writing background. So this is the most I ever learned about writing, right. Was in that, was in that process. And then, um, and then they throw some grenades on your script and you go home and you try and rewrite it, right? And then, um, and then I, shortly after that, I was lucky enough to win the SF San Francisco Film Westridge um, Screenwriting Grant. And that was a six-month process that I was able to experience with another advisor and four other filmmakers in my cohort. And some of those filmmakers are well-known, Academy Award-nominated do these do these foundations or these these scholarships or or however you're sort of involved with them do, do they create communities that you s- stick with after does this feel like a breakthrough career wise in some way or is it yeah yeah the, the, a big yes yeah you're kind of in the circle now right like I'm in the I'm in the club I'm a Sundance supported filmmaker I'm a SF film supported filmmaker in the narrative sense I hope hopefully at some point I will be in the documentary sense as well and I have a doorway to that you know um, you you meet everybody um, you're what well, I'm what's interesting is out of both Sundance and SF film I think I was the only one out of our groups that wasn't in LA or New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so particularly for me, you know, being in St. Louis, it's pretty huge, right? Like, um, I don't know a lot of filmmakers. I don't know agents. I don't know the whole ecosphere of filmmaking and things yeah. like that. So this is my only connection to all that, right? It's, and, you know, and that's about as good as it could get, right? Like through Sundance and through, organizations like SF film. So, um, yeah, so they, they call, I mean, I, we communicate, they check in on us. Um, if I need something, I can ask them if I want to meet a producer or a director or a actor, they, they are more than happy to facilitate that. Um, they have other opportunities for writing, for directing, for creative producing, you know, Sundance is just, and, and not only Sundance and SF Film, but then all the organizations. Sundance and SF Film are, are very tightly connected, and of course, they're connected to all sorts of other film organizations. And so they all this is all kind of like once your name is kind of like in this in the discussion, so to speak, like um, it starts to be uh, be helpful. And well, and you, it gives you that validation, so that you're not a even if you're an, an unknown entity, having somebody else introduce you is the whole key. To that world, I think, right? Like, the worst thing you can do is make your own calls when you're working at a at an entry level, you right. know. And then, um, yeah, and then at the more than anything, it just made me feel like what I was writing was I uh, was onto something, you know. When I wrote this thing, I was just writing it just to write it, and you know, I I was just writing whatever it is I felt like a movie should be, you know, and it definitely is not gonna. It's not something that would be loved by everybody, but they bought into it. They liked it. Um, and I've been evolving that script the past couple of years and moving, working towards trying to get that made. And then I'm also in the middle of a documentary feature that I've been kind of slow roll, kind of just shooting and figuring out the past two years um, that will hopefully gel together in the, in the next year or so. 
And that's a pretty interesting project that a lot of people have been um, interested in. And then other than that, I'm just kind of like, I, I like writing because I could do it by myself. I could just be home or go on. A, I like to go on writing retreats, right? It's really difficult to write at home. There's just like too much distractions. So I like disappear for like a week and go and go write. And so I'm trying to do more of that. And I got a few other things I want to write. And then other than that, I'm just trying to get back into working, getting paid for something. I've spent the past two years like trying to develop these films and nobody pays you for cool ideas or being the cool guy who went to Sundance. So I need to get back to like directing commercials and videos and, and, and things of that nature. That's where I always feel super uh, cool, lame, where you're like, I'm working on all these things. And I'm like, I want to get you a Cisco commercial. <laughs> Please. But it's fun. It's like, it's, it's just something you do it, you're done, you fuck off and you get back to the yeah, thing that you short, made. They're short lived. They are fun. Clients are generally pretty cool. Sometimes you make something that's really cool. Sometimes you make something that's like, well, whatever, I got paid. Yeah, call it a day. But I mean, they're all fun, and I work really hard on on anything I do. You know, I want it to be as good as it could possibly be, and so it's it's a it's always fun to do commercial stuff. People really like, I think, especially film people, right? They really kind of like balk at the idea of making videos and commercials and stuff like that. But I mean, I think they're a blast, man. I get tired of films. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's nice to have a. Uh... Simple thing. Uh, this is this is the point in the podcast where we ended, and Dane will probably just cut it right there where I said that because we don't really have a way to end these. Um, normally, we would just ask you, Bobby, to to choose what theme of music Dane should put beneath my rambling bullshit right now. Uh, what would that be? What what song should Dane bed the in- the outro with? What kind of music? Everyone's so hot on this Stranger Things song. What's that song called? Oh, the the uh, uh, make a deal with Bush God song. Okay, yeah. so oh, you know what song? You know what song I've been listening to a lot lately? Uh, I want you to want me by Cheap Trick. Oh, there we go. Right. So, Dane, to that this is going to be the yeah, style. Yeah, these these the, these are all easily findable in stock library. Music. Yeah, within our budget. <laughs> so, at this point. Oh, but even better, there's I Want You to Want Me Spanish version by uh, Gael Garcia Bernal from the Oh yes. From the Quran movie. Uh, not Alfonso Quran, his brother. Um, Rudo y Cursi. Yep. Right? I love that. And movie. he played and and and, uh, and he has this music video where he does I Want You to Want Me in Spanish. That's the jam right there. So Dane I'm trying to figure out how to use that. Here you here you go. That's that's you gotta find a sound like that. And then, and then this thing, uh, it ends. Thanks, Bobby, for, for being on. Yeah. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you. Thanks, Dane. And you really say thanks a lot. <laughs> you can cut it. Oh, <laughs> sí,